0: Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at ShorensteinCenter.org.
1: Uh, welcome, you all, to uh, this. Second in our semester's uh, speaker series, uh, it is a great pleasure and, uh, frankly, an honor to have Margaret Sullivan here. I have been aware of Margaret from uh, for a long, long time because one of my, perhaps the best journalism student I ever had was at Duke University, and she went to work for Margaret and under Margaret did some really quite remarkable work, I thought, and unfortunately she decided to. Uh, Forsake journalism, and I'm hoping that one of these days she'll come back. But I think the thing is that she came to regard Margaret as her champion and the person who was the stand-up uh, at the Buffalo News. Thank you. Uh, it is not surprising that the New York Times chose her to be the public editor. Uh, you may know this already, Margaret, but uh, we have up here as a tradition after each presidential election. The campaign managers of all the campaigns, mm-hmm. come and the, the chairman or the head of the of the of the, uh, of the Republican campaign, um, allowed as how his candidate lost because of the New York Times. If there was any one thing Not that bad. caused his loss, it was the New York Times. <laughs> My point is this: the New York Times is a, a very powerful institution, and if you work at the New York Times, you're very well aware that your words have an outsized power to do good things and to do bad things sometimes. And the public editor's job is something that uh, did not exist when I was at the New York Times, but was created in the wake of the Jason Blair scandal. Uh, Dan Oakrant was the first one, and he was here as a fellow. And Margaret is now succeeding uh, Dan and several others. She has already distinguished herself, in my opinion, as someone who is willing to take on very difficult subjects and address them with, with genuine and careful thought. Her, her post not long ago about the New York Times' decision to identify the location of a drone base in Saudi Arabia, something that was very controversial and uh, not surprising to me, uh, that was something that Margaret took on head-on and made a case Uh, for the people who said it was uh, a bad thing for the Times to do, and came down herself on the side that it was an appropriate thing for the Times to do. And I'll let her, perhaps later on, engage that question. Uh, In any event, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Margaret, I know that uh, because the Times is so important, it's also important that its power is subject to uh, review and scrutiny, and that's your job. Welcome. We're glad to have you.
2: Thank you very much, Alex. Hi, everybody um, I'm very happy to be here. this is uh an honor to speak to this group and uh, I'd like to get right to it because we have fifteen minutes of my holding forth, and then uh, there'll be uh, time for a number of questions and I just want to say in advance that we uh, in the question period uh fee- please feel free to open it up to anything uh, at all. We don't have to stay on the subject of social media and objectivity so um you know, if you want to tell me that your paper isn't getting delivered, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, we'll try to stay on journalism. So uh, here's what I have in mind for this, uh, for this brief, uh, brief period of talking to you. Um, so the topic is the new objectivity, how social media is changing traditional news reporting. So I'd like to talk a little bit about two journalistic opinion makers with radically opposite points of view on this topic. I happen to know both of them, and I actually respect them both. Uh, Then I'd like to talk about two real-world situations uh, from journalism that have come up in recent times that speak to this. And then I'd like to pose a question that I'm not sure of the answer to and draw one conclusion that I am very sure about, and then I'd like to take your questions. So, um, So the two people are Tom Kent, who is the standards editor for the Associated Press. So the standards editor is the guy who tries to keep everybody at the Associated Press in line with what their policies are. And the other person is uh, an academic, Jay Rosen, at uh, New York University. So um, Tom Kent is on the, I guess you could say, traditional or conservative side of the question of journalistic objectivity today. And I'm going to read you something that he wrote recently. He said, at heart, objective journalism sets out to establish the facts about a situation, report fairly the range of opinion around it, and take a first cut at what arguments are the most reasonable. To keep the presentation rigorous, journalists should have professional reporting and editing skills, be they staff or independent journalists, paid or unpaid. To show their here's the important part, to show their commitment to balance, journalists should keep their personal opinions to themselves. And this addendum, that everyone understands objectivity differently, makes it a dangerously fuzzy concept, easy roadkill in the rush to new journalism techniques. We dismiss it at our peril. Okay, so that's one side of the of the issue, um, and I also have. A memo that he wrote to uh, his staff. This is really bears reading. I think it's great stuff. So this, of course, was leaked to Romanesco. Um, of course, of course. Uh, from Tom Kent. Subject: Expressing personal opinion on social networks. In at least two recent cases, we have seen a few postings on social networks by AP staffers expressing personal opinions on issues in the news. This was from July of 2011. This has happened on the New York. Senate vote on gay marriage and on the Casey Anthony trial. These posts undermine the credibility of our colleagues who have been working so hard to assure balanced and unbiased coverage of these issues. Failure to abide by these rules can lead to disciplinary action. Um, The vast majority of our tweets on these stories and and on other issues in the news have been completely in line with our guidelines, Um, but these weren't. So that kind of tells you where he's coming from. Okay. Jay Rosen. So Jay Rosen is a journalism professor at NYU, and he writes something called the Press Think Blog, and he's on the opposite side of this question. I think I can sum up Jay Rosen's point of view on this by saying that he thinks that objectivity is an outdated concept and that um, journalists should, be, should tell their readers and their listeners uh, where they're coming from. They should say what their politics are. And then you have a good sense of where they're coming from, and you can judge their output based on that. He, he wrote, he actually said to me in an interview, the grounds for trust are slowly shifting. The view from nowhere, which is what he calls traditional journalistic impartiality, the view from nowhere. It's actually not his phrase, but, and he says that it's not his phrase, but he uses it. The view from nowhere is slowly getting harder to trust, and here's where I'm coming from, is more likely to be trusted. Okay. Um, He also says that this belief system of objectivity is in serious trouble. It answers a political question with an evacuation of politics toward which professional professional correctness in journalism allows only neutrality and its endless equivalence. So it's a cop-out, in other words. So those are the two... Those are the two polls, although I have to say, these are both very reasonable people, and there actually is a fair amount of common ground uh, if you look for it, but they seem to be pretty far apart. Okay, so that maybe frames it a little bit. Um, Let's talk about two situations from from real-world journalism. One has to do with the New York Times uh, Jerusalem bureau chief, Jody Rudorn. Uh, I wrote a... Blog post about this not too long ago. Um, Jody was, is relatively new in the Jerusalem Bureau, which is probably ar- arguably the most sensitive position in journalism. One of them. Um, you can't do anything right, basically. If you're the job. New York Times. If you're especially. the New York Times, yes, exactly. Um, and as she took the job, just as she took the job, she, you know, she's a younger reporter, she's a standout reporter and editor, sent to a very important post, uh, her first foreign post, I'm quite sure, and she, within a few days, this is my, these are my words, within a few days of taking the post, she had sent some Twitter messages well, you can't call them tweets in the New York Times. They won't let you. It's against, it's against New York Times style to say tweets, so you have to say Twitter messages.
1: That's so New York Times. I remember the day that Gloria Steinem came on to the floor of the newsroom to congratulate Abe for allowing reporters to use Ms. Mm. Until then, the second reference had to be Miss or Mrs., and if you were a reporter interviewing a woman, you had to say I remember this very well. Uh, I have to identify you as Miss or Mrs. in the second reference. If you don't choose, I will use Miss. And then I would hold the phone out like this. <laughs> <laughs> We've come a long way, baby. <laughs> we say Miss now, but not tweet. Um, and the very reason is we, that it was cheaper because it
3: used less eight.
1: No.
2: I wouldn't say that was why.
1: No, I would say it was pure, no, pure bull, you know, bullheaded stupidity. Efficiency
2: was never part of the
4: time.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Besides, if you wanted to say Vink, you would say "Miss." Yeah. Anyway, within a few days of taking the post, she had sent some Twitter messages that brought criticism and had people evaluating her politics before she had dug into the reporting work before her. Jeffrey Goldberg, <clears throat> writing in The Atlantic, summarized them. So this is a quote from something he wrote. I'm not saying I agree with him here, but this is what he wrote. She schmoozed up Ali Abu Nima, a Palestinian activist who argues for Israel's destruction. She also praised Peter Beinert's upcoming book, The Crisis of Zionism, as terrific, provocative, readable, full of reporting and reflection. These are in tweets. She also linked without comment to an article in a pro-Hezbollah uh, Lebanese newspaper. The headline on Mr. Goldberg's article was, Twitter-verse to new NYT Jerusalem bureau chief, colon, stop tweeting. So um, the upshot of that situation was that the Times decided to have an editor work with her on her Facebook and Twitter, you know, all of her social media. In other words, she wasn't going to any longer have this unfiltered channel where she would sit down in front of her computer and say whatever she wants to, like we all do on Facebook and Twitter. She would work with an editor to sort of, Mold, the, mold those messages, which really, you know, many people were quick to say that that runs against the entire ethos of social media. I mean, if you're going to be on Facebook, you don't want to have an editor sitting next to you telling you what to write, but, but there were problems, obviously. Um, and the other – so that kind of gives you a sense of how social media can really – create issues, create problems, and also create opportunity. I mean, it's a way to communicate that we haven't had before. Another way, very different way, in which social media has been affecting traditional news reporting was in the news media's reporting of the Newtown massacre. So there, if you remember correctly, um, the early reporting was pretty bad and I'm not talking the New York Times uh, here, I'm talking about in general, Uh, the first few hours, the first news cycle, um, a shooter was named. They named Ryan Lanza. Um, They named a Ryan Lanza, and they showed a Facebook photo of a Ryan Lanza. Well, then, within a couple hours, because people on social media were saying, oh, my God, it's what are you talking about? And because this Ryan Lanza came forward to say, it's not me. It quickly went to, oh, it's not that Ryan Lanza. It's this Ryan Lanza. <laughs> uh, but it turned out that it wasn't Ryan Lanza. It was his brother, Adam Lanza. Um, so at one point, and, you know, again, I, I, I'm coming from a, you know, I pay a lot of attention to what's in the New York Times, so my examples will be from there. But the Times generally does very, very good and accurate work, I'd like to stress. Um, but the Times, in its early web reporting, said, according to news reports, uh, the shooter's name, they didn't put it that way because they wouldn't probably say that, uh, was, was Ryan Lanza. So they named the wrong guy okay, on the web. And then there were also all these other things floating around. Like um, his mother worked at the school, uh, the principal buzzed him in. None of these things turned out to be true, but they all got into early news reports. Again, now I'm not talking about the New York Times for the most part, but just everything that was up there. It was all, it was a mass of inaccuracies. But here, I think social media was a real double edged sword because it both perpetuated these inaccuracies and then quickly worked to correct them. So I think that it, uh, it kind of cuts both ways, and that often happens. The immediate news cycle, the, the immediate uh, examination of everything that's put out there can often result in more accurate information ultimately coming out. You have an entire world of public editors, let's say, Um, to to say whether something's right, whether it's accurate, you know, whether it's according to, you know, whether it's factual, frankly. So, you know, those are just two small examples. They're actually not very small, but they are two examples of where, you know, the web, broadly defined, but also social media is sort of really changing what's going on. So uh, the question... Now I'll pose the question that I'm not sure of the answer to. Uh, And that is, on the Jay Rosen over here and Tom Kent scale of, you know, tell us everything and let us judge it versus, please check your personal biases and opinions at the door. You know, where's the right place to be on that spectrum? And I would say it's no longer possible to be completely faceless um, because journalists are on social media. They are out there, you know, honing their personal brands or at the very least their their newspapers or their websites or their blogs, you know, brand. And so they're trying to use the, the web to get their message out and they're in that process, exposing who they are—is that a bad thing? Is it a bad thing for—is uh, it a bad thing for us to know um, what a political reporter's politics are? Would you rather know, or would you rather not know? I mean, I don't think that question is easily answered right now. I have to say that I—it's probably not surprising—I come down a little closer to where the AP is, to where Tom Kent is. I still think that it makes a lot of sense for hard news reporters. I'm not talking about opinion columnists. I'm not not talking about um, people who blog for an advocacy organization. But um, for the White House reporter of the New York Times or the congressional reporter of the Washington Post, I think it makes a lot of sense for them to keep their politics under wraps. I just don't see how it really helps anyone for people to be immediately prejudging and, I think, distrusting them because, well, you're in the tank for so-and-so. I just don't think it works very well. Um, The standards editor at the New York Times is a very smart guy whose name is Phil Corbett, and he has... um, He's been very helpful on this subject, and here's what he says. I flatly reject the notion that there is no such thing as impartial objective journalism, which is part of what the people on the other side say. You can't, be impartial, and you can't be impartial, so just tell us what you think. So he flatly rejects that notion. He flatly rejects the notion that it's some kind of pretense or charade and that we should just give it up, come clean, and lay out our biases. We expect professionals in all sorts of fields to put their personal opinions aside or keep them to themselves when they do their work. Judges, police officers, scientists, teachers, why would we expect less of journalists? I think that's pretty reasonable. But I also think that it's changing and that it needs to change. The one thing that I'm very sure of is that this business of impartiality and balance no longer should mean, uh, well, he said this, and she said that. So I'm going to go down the middle and call them even and call it a day. And that's my job as a journalist. That no longer cuts it. That's what has become known as false equivalence, and it really is something that's changing and should change. Uh, these days, it makes a lot of sense it makes great sense for journalists to figure out where the established truths are on a controversial issue, whether it's Paul Ryan's speech at the uh, Republican National Convention or whether it's uh, the truth about climate change or whether it's the has to do with the controversy, if you will, over intelligent design versus evolution, evolution you know, there are some things that we know to be true or we accept as true, and journalists should not be fearful of simply stating those things. Um, and that, I think, is a, is a place that is changing for the better and needs to continue in that direction. Um, I want to give you an example of language that's used in a news story to state and establish truth. So, again, instead of saying, well, there's a lot of people who think that evolution is true, and then there's a lot of other people who think that, you know, intelligent design, creationism, is true. And they're kind of equal. Um, Here's some language that actually appeared in the New York Times that, in a story, that in a hard news story, without being quoted, it's just this is the reporter's voice, There is no credible scientific challenge to the theory of evolution as an explanation for the complexity and diversity of life on Earth. Courts have repeatedly ruled that creationism and intelligent design are religious doctrines, not scientific theories. So, uh, and that can be applied to many things. Again, it can be applied to climate change. Here's what we know to be true. It can be applied to fact-checking a political speech. The candidate said this, but here's what we know. Here's what we know to be true. This is a place where I think that impartiality and objectivity and down the middle has really changed for the better. So the question of um, whether I want to expose my political beliefs as a reporter, I think, is up in the air. But I err on the side of being cautious about that. And. Um, And I think all of this stuff is changing, and the more reporters and editors are exposing their beliefs, who they are, what they eat for breakfast, um, and all of that um, on social media, the more this old way of doing things is at least going to come under scrutiny. And I think that's a good thing. I, I don't know that it should be destroyed because it's coming under scrutiny, but I think it's good to look at it. So um, I would love to go to questions. Well, let me
1: uh, take my prerogative and ask a couple of of ones that are uh, on my mind that are not directly related to this, but they're certainly part of the issue of standards. One of the standards that was rigorously enforced when I was at the New York Times by Abe Rosenthal was that there cannot be in the New York Times a uh, an anonymous pejorative comment. You can't quote someone saying someone is a scumbag. Said someone who declined to be. <laughs> Does that still hold? Because I find that that is something that, in my reading of the New York Times, uh, I think that it's uh, it sails very close to the wind on mm-hmm, that.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I I I agree, and I think everyone ag- would agree that it's a bad practice, and I still see it from time to time and I have commented on it. Um, you know, it's, I, it's, it's clearly unacceptable. I mean, I suppose there could be some strange exception, um, but I can't imagine what the justification would be.
1: Another Another dimension of what you were talking about seems to me to be the issue of conflicts of interest. And um, effectively, what, what sort of proclaiming your political ideology is all about is not necessarily something that uh, means your reporting isn't fair and balanced, and that you're not telling it straight. Uh, but it does do something that, it, again, in my in my time, the New York Times made a tenet of its conflict of interest <coughs> policy, which is that you must avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest, of, of, of interest, because of the damage it would do the institution as a whole, mm-hmm. and the idea that it would reflect badly on. On the on the institution, Mm -hmm. this is why uh, in your predecessor's day um, there was an issue again about a bureau chief in Jerusalem whose son was in the military and
2: the Israeli military.
1: Yes, and and I was asked by your predecessor whether I thought the times should remove him. Mm -hmm. He didn't. He had done nothing wrong, Um, but the question was because of this intensely sensitive situation, in which every side is trying to discredit mm-hmm. the New York Times for its own reasons. I didn't see any reason to put that ahead of, I mean, the institution's best interests ahead of, of, of this. Bill Keller, was then the editor, did not agree with me, and, and I think that, uh, um, you know, he stayed. It was, as I say, this was. It was not a matter of his doing something wrong, but it was inconceivable that there would be a big story in Israel that would not involve the military if it was going to be violent, and that this could immediately yeah. not just not mean that his his reporting would be compromised, <coughs> but the perception could be. How right. do you feel about that?
2: Well, one? I'm certainly familiar with that situation, um, and I I know, or I. It's my belief that when Ethan Bronner went to cover Jerusalem, his son was not in the Israeli military, and he gets over there, and his family's living uh, in in Israel, and uh, his son is an independent person, and uh, and decides to go into the Israeli military. So, you know, it's not as if he went over there, and I, you know, with that happening. I know. Happening. Um, you know, I mean, I think it, it certainly wasn't ideal, was it? Was it the kind of thing where, as soon as his son entered the the military, he should have been yanked out of the Jer- Jerusalem bureau and brought back to New York? I'm not sure.
1: There are a lot of good jobs at the New York
5: Times.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly problematic. I. I I don't know the. But answer you're the to public
1: that. editor. You've got to. <laughs> I have
2: opinions, but, I, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I try to talk about things that are current and that I've studied and written about and reported on. So.
1: And how much of your of your work, as far as you're concerned, is about how Margaret Sullivan feels about things, and how much of it, of it is interpreting an institutional history instead of standards?
2: Well, there's many parts to the job. Some of it has to do with representing reader concerns. And actually, I think that's the, that, there are two really important things about it. One is representing reader concerns and people who, for example, have come to the Times wanting a correction and haven't, or, you know, something like that, and haven't gotten satisfaction. They come to the public editor as sort of a court of last resort. Um, And the other really important role is to take up questions of journalistic integrity, because the reason the job was established was because Jason Blair uh, you know and his the whole fabrication scandal that came up around that meant that there needed to be a way to guard against it. So those are really the most important um, roles. So I'd like to go to yes, questions absolutely. from the if we could. Please somebody start. The, right, we're going,
1: we have to we start with students and fellows. So students Anyone? in Yeah. Um,
3: thank you, Margaret, for coming um, here. And my question is about an issue that you raised about evolution versus creationism. Um, I happen to be in Professor Jones' class, and um, there is a student who believes, I, I think, partially or maybe wholly in creationism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would very much like to, Mm-hmm. Precisely. Mm-hmm. So, how do you engage someone um, whose ideas are so diagonally
2: opposed to yours? Well, are you saying engage in conversation? Just chat with him? Um,
3: either
4: formally in the context of the class or informally.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there are some <coughs> issues that are just extremely difficult and you're probably not going to come to a meeting of the minds on. Um, you know, I would say that abortion is one of those. And, um, you know, I don't think that you can... I don't think you're going to change somebody's mind who's pretty firmly ensconced one way or the other. But I think the word you used, respectfully, is the most important one. And it's good to have conversation and not a shouting match. Um, I don't think I have any anything beyond that except to say that, you know, I think it's it's worth talking and you may have to accept that you're not going to be able to make much headway.
1: Uh, students first, and then, then we'll get
0: to it. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm curious about if everyone is stating they're coming out with their mm-hmm. beliefs, and essentially, isn't that just going to fragment, you know, I will only listen to <coughs> this source, I'll only listen yes. to this source. And then the other, I'm also interested in, I'm, I'm wondering about the Turners and Murdochs of the world, and, like, how does that come into play, that element of, well, we don't want you to come out with your beliefs, because you're going to alienate our listen our, 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 you know, our constituency, if you will. Mm-hmm. And how it. be to well,
2: I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head when you say that the minute you declare where you're coming from, you have further fractured an already very polarized situation. You know, we have, we have a very polarized um, political climate, and, you know, it's really helpful to have some news sources that at least set out <laughs> not to be in either of those camps, um, So I think that's a great argument for the more traditional and the more conservative approach. Um, But we have to know that it's changing, that it's not, we can't go back to a time when, you know, journalists weren't using all these tools. Because the minute they start to use these tools, you start to know who they are as people. And that's where I guess I think the right answer for now lies is, you know, to be able to, you know, David Leonhardt is a great example, I think. He's the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times. He has a lot of expertise in economics, has written about economics, and, you know, for him to tell us a lot about himself in terms of that so we know where his writing is coming from is actually helpful. I don't think it makes sense for him to say uh, who he voted for.
1: Students. Students, and uh, okay. Martin?
6: Yeah, hi, I'm Martin Nissenholz. Um,
1: Another Timesman.
6: Yeah. Um, I want to move the conversation just a, a, away from hard news just for a moment, mm-hmm. if that's okay with sure. you. Sure. Um, stay on the social media topic, but away from hard news. And I think that from the outset, we always conceived of the Times website and its digital entities as being more than just repositories for Times journalism that we had a really smart, vibrant audience and that that audience could engage with us in all sorts of ways. And from the earliest days, you know, in comments, but increasingly over time, you know, in a range of ways. And one of the ways that I don't think we've managed to make much headway, frankly, even though we've tried for many years, is in criticism. Um, I think part of the problem is that you know, some websites are just natural repositories for user interaction, maybe Amazon in the books area, mm. Travelocity in, in, in hotels, Yelp in, in local restaurants and bars. But for whatever reason, our audience hasn't kind of lit up the Times website. And I was I just what what was sort of wondering what your perspective was with respect to the, the it's sort of an opinion It's sort of part of the the opinion area. But Mm -hmm. do you think the Times should be a place where people can freely offer their opinions, even if they're biased? In other words, Mm -hmm. part of the problem with Yelp is that half the time you don't know whether the owner (laughs) is writing a review, (laughs) his cousin is writing a review. Mm -hmm. And there are all these disclosure policies Mm -hmm. around that. Mm -hmm. And frankly, the same would be true of whether it was the Buffalo paper or the New York Times. how do you feel about this central notion of identity, the you know user identity and the intersection of that with commentary?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess I disagree with you to some extent that that users and readers haven't lit up the New York Times with their responsiveness because I think that the commentary beneath stories is amazing. Um, you know, I, I've seen stories. In many a, in a
6: reviews area, not not in not in hard news. Okay. In, yeah. Go go into our travel area, for yeah. example, and look at how many hotel reviews. We sure, have. I understand. You just don't have that many, right? Yeah.
2: Um, well, you know, I I think it's it would be, it, you know, my feeling about people who <coughs> review and comment is it helps a lot to know who they are. Um, when I was the editor of the Buffalo News, I did something very unusual in the country which is that I required commenters on stories of all stripes to use their real names and to go through a, and to go through a verification process just like you would with a letter to the editor you got to use your name and say what your hometown is because the uh the tenor was you know, headed towards the gutter very, very quickly. And so it's amazing. Once you have to attach your name and your hometown to it, it tends to clean things up. So that doesn't speak directly to your point, but I think it does speak to, you know, credibility and how much you can depend on someone. If you know who they are and maybe what their interest is, you can judge it a little bit better. Um
0: I covered the most recent campaign, and it's... There were, there were always the regular sort of habitual criticism, criticisms among Republicans that the press was being too liberal. Um, but the, the more immediate criticism that I heard, at least, from more senior veteran members of the Romney campaign, was that reporters, and I mean the everyday sort of regular campaign reporters, were engaging um, in sort of snark, humor, real-time mockery disguised as fact-checking on Twitter. And that really aggravated them because mm-hmm. they thought it was cheapening Mm -hmm. the process and Mm -hmm. and sort of making it unserious. Um, And that seemed to be more of the issue than just the political um, biases. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, and also, has has the standards that are the times sort of weighed in on that? Because, I mean, lots of reporters engage in this. I know. Sometimes reporters do, too.
2: Yeah. Um, Well, you know, Twitter is one of the snarkiest places on earth, you know. So, I mean, it it, it specializes. You can't really, you know, the the best way to be mocked on Twitter is to be earnest. (laughs) You know, it is a place to be snarky. I mean, it just is. So um, I know what you're talking about, and I think it's, it's, it's a problem. It's regrettable, you know. I think you have to be really careful. Reporters and editors and everyone, really, should be very careful before they hit the send or tweet button. Um, but, I, you know, the, the tone that you're talking about, I think, is a problem. And, um, you know, I've seen it, too, and I'm uh, across many media organizations. And, um, you know, the Times has a very... General social media policy. It doesn't say you can do this, you can't do that. It says please be thoughtful. Please remember that you work for the New York Times. Um, Please, you know, don't do anything stupid. Basically, Um, and you know, I think that that probably works for the most part. I think it might be helpful to be, and I've actually had some reporters say this to me that they wouldn't they wouldn't mind a little more specific guidance. Um, and so I, I would be in favor of, of that, and maybe that takes the form of saying, you know, here are some things we've seen. Well, like Tom Kent did in his in his memo to the staff on a different topic. You know, here are some things we've seen. This really doesn't cut it. Um, I think that would get the message across pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Catherine um, Mel, I'm one of the new fellows this year. Thank you so much for your presentation. So um, I have two questions. The first one is, how do you, you know, you mentioned Twitter as being a snarky place. If you want to build a community, and that's something that we as reporters are constantly pushed by our editors mm-hmm. to do now, mm-hmm. as a matter of staying competitive and so on, um, you need to engage your followers. Mm-hmm. And so how, you know, how can you how can you balance that? Mm-hmm. If there's constant pressure of sending out several tweets a day, and yet you're not really... A day. Well, <laughs> an hour and,
0: and, 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 and
3: yet you're not really allowed to you know, disclose who you really are mm-hmm. should yeah. you have a separate Twitter account or whatever and the second question is um, there is a part of course that you have control over in terms of what you tweet yourself mm-hmm. but there's a part that you have less control over um, I remember this incident that we just read on, online about this Iranian American um, uh, journalist of the Wall Street Journal whose emails um, somehow started circling so you know she didn't tweet her opinions that was an email, email. What? That was an email. Exactly. Yes. So the, you know, we all we will agree that we all have opinions, mm-hmm. and we might share them with people in, in a circle that we may feel safe in. Mm-hmm. And then somebody may take those opinions and circulate them. That's never happened to me so far. But if it did, um, I would hope that my newspaper would protect me. it certainly, did, if it wasn't something that I had done and I hadn't, I'd actually followed the guideline of not being stupid. But somebody else, you know, overheard something. Or, I mean, mm. how
2: would you deal with that? Well, I think one of the most useful—I I mean, I find Twitter to be extremely useful. I mean, invaluable, actually. It's—it's um, it's an incredible news source. It's a great way to get your message out. I mean, the most, the best thing about Twitter for me is not people's, um, you know, sarcastic comments, but it's the, it's the, it's the link to a story. It's the hey, did you see this? Um, did you see this and this, you know, I mean, when you can take people to something, I think that's the most useful. To me, that's the most useful part of it for myself and uh, both, you know, on the sending end and on the receiving end. And I should say that even though I I describe Twitter as such a snarky place, I've actually found it also personally to be a very um, uh, supportive place in which when you take a stand... I mean, as I did on Sunday with my column about uh, the press not holding things back for national security reasons, um, you can get a lot of support there, too. So, it again, it can work in a lot of different ways. But I think, you know, you just have to be careful yourself. Use it for the best possible reasons, which are to disseminate information rather than to, you know, comment sarcastically on things. And I think that tends to work about as well as anything. And be careful. Be extremely, extremely careful. You know, give it a third read before you send it out. I mean, I've been embarrassed on Twitter uh, just by having a, a misspelling you know, stupid misspelling, and you know, you, you really can't take it back. I mean, you can, but you know, someone will have a screen grab and make fun of you for the rest of your life. So um, you just, you know, I would say, be your own editor, and then be your own editor again, and ask yourself whether you would really like to see that, you know, you know, whatever the expression is, on the front page of the New York Times or on a billboard or something.
1: John, and then Chuck your next.
2: Yeah, I just would like to react to the question
7: posed between the Rosen mm-hmm. poll and the uh, and the uh, Kent point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I don't think there is some uh, higher power of morality that says one or the other of those is wrong, but. I think it very much depends on who you are and where you sit and what you own. Mm -hmm. And if you own the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Time Magazine or NBC News, you've got billions of dollars in goodwill and equity that you've built up over the years by having an audience that comes to you because they have certain expectations. And in the case of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, there is a certain inherent bias that you expect in what they cover and what their point of view is, but there are also some expectations that you expect in terms of achieving objectivity or uh, an effort at objectivity. That's right. So if that leads you to the second question, which is the people who work for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, they're in those rooms, they're on those planes, they're in that position, mostly because The New York Times paid for them to go there and attracted their audience to them. So I think that some journalists confuse the advent of social media with it's a distribution channel for you to distribute something. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a license for you to bear your deepest soul and your deepest thoughts and your attitude or to compete with, say, Andrew Sullivan, who makes his living... By bearing everything about who he is and what he is, and you go there with that expectation. You know who he is, you know what he thinks, Mm -hmm. and you want to know what he thinks about a particular thing. That's right. And I'll give you an example Mm -hmm. from my experience, which is a uh, foreign correspondent for Time magazine, late at night, made a blog post. I personally think that there should be, if I... Wave a magic wand. I would put a (laughs) breathalyzer (laughs) on keyboards before people just you know you're not in tweetable condition. You're not allowed to tweet. Put your keys on the table and go to and go to bed. (laughs) Go to bed. Retweet in the morning. (laughs) But in any event, this this uh, was on a very there was an event. And it was a bad event and uh, there was a tragedy and a seasoned reporter uh, expressed an opinion that more or less said maybe they deserved it. Um, now that instantly was translated across the world by every form of distribution, as Time Magazine says. That's right. So then that instantly becomes my problem. Mm-hmm. Did Time Magazine say this? No, we didn't say this. this
1: Our former employee did. This guy said this. <laughs> so, so, yeah, exactly. So
7: when you're, well, there is a remedy for that that falls into the area of, that's sort of a human breathalyzer.
2: Yes. If
7: you want to tweet anything send it here first and you say people criticize that well, if he's on his own and he has an audience and he wants to do that, who cares but if he's doing it under the uh, the identity of Time Magazine or the New York Times I think the institution has every right in the world to have a social media policy that says what you're going to say is either going to be anodyne or it's going to be in keeping with the standards but It develops in trying to develop social media policies anymore. It isn't like developing standards and practices in the old days. There are now legal issues Mm -hmm. about social media, what you can tell an employee and what you can't, which is a long way. I don't understand how social media became an inalienable right to say whatever <laughs> you want to say under somebody else's distribution, uh, uh, under somebody else's aegis. I don't know how that happened, but that is a legal problem. Right. Whereas in the old days, the Wall Street Journal fired Jude Waniski, a, a right-wing editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal whose, edi- whose political views were well-known, but they fired him for violating a policy of standing in a subway station handing out leaflets for a candidate, because you're not allowed to actively uh, work in a campaign if right. you work
2: there. Right. So, you can do whatever you want. You can. You just can't do it and work for that institution. Yeah, yeah. No, we're not saying that you don't have the right under the Constitution to say it. <laughs> but, <laughs> I
7: funny. Do, but I do think that the issue, <laughs> to finish, I know it went on a while here, but the issue, to get back to the issue of objectivity versus <laughs> Uh, you know, all, lose all pretense of objectivity. I think if you're Jay Rosen and your business is to throw bombs at the at the institutional media and say everything you're doing is outdated and irrelevant, then that's what you say. But if you own any sort of and there is some validity to th- what readers expect and mm-hmm. where they go, mm-hmm. but if you own any sort of journalistic institution, you're trying to protect that audience and that and that expectation, mm-hmm. and you you. If you're the New York Times, you have to stand up for objectivity.
2: Right. I don't disagree, but I will disagree. that I think, actually, Jay and others like him are pretty thoughtful people and uh, have something to offer.
7: Well, you can be a provocateur and be thoughtful, but it's just important to know where he's coming from, sure. which is he's there to provoke. He's there to bait the mainstream media, in my opinion.
1: And he does well, he certainly job. enjoys doing it. And right? he does a good job yeah.
6: of it. Yes, yeah, um... I do a great deal of blogging on the Huffington Post, and uh, I bear a lot, and I like to do it. But at Harvard, uh, I understand there's sort of a subliminal inhibition against blogging. It is not considered uh, very professional. It is not researched. It is slapdash. It is uh, tossed off. This doesn't prevent some people, like for example, Steve Walt, has a very effective blog on foreign policy. But what what is your reaction to this whole world of blogging?
2: Well, a blog is what you make of it. You know, it's just a delivery system. It's not. It's not inherently good <coughs> or bad. It's not inherently slapdash or. You know, extremely well researched. It's just a. Th- it's just a way to get your message out. Um, the fact that it is so immediate and that you can do it from your desktop or your laptop or your phone, for that matter, and have it out within a few moments probably you know, pushes it more over toward the side of, of being you know, less filled with impeccable research. But um, it doesn't need to be. So I don't think it's about our blogs good or bad, but rather what kind of a blog do you have and, and um, what kind of standards do you bring to it. So I, I, I don't um, agree with the idea that blogging is, you know, class A or something. It's it, it, Some are, and some are great.
1: I think the culture of Harvard is such that uh, it's not surprising to me that some people blog and some don't. Uh, some people write op-eds and some don't, and they don't for the same reason. They're concerned about their the small number of people who they feel are judging them as scholars, and they consider anything that would put that reputation in jeopardy, uh, which blogging and op-eds can do, uh, something that they don't want to risk, and they also don't in many cases at Harvard, I believe, want to put their views in a kind of colloquial form that makes them accessible, because they're, that's not the way they're built. It's a scholarly place, and their sort of interaction tends to be among scholars. But there, I would say that there actually are a fair number of people who blog uh, from time to time from Harvard. I mean, you know, at the Bertman Center and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of Harvard's a big place. And uh, there are a lot of people who, I think, do from time to time, not many do it as regularly, say, as Steve Walt, but his is more like a column, I think, and a, and a, and a sort of an avenue for commentary. Uh, but he pays a price for that, I would, I would imagine, in the same way that someone like Carl Sagan paid a price for being a popular, uh, you know, man of, uh, of science. That's not the Academy's way of uh, looking at things. Yes, you had a comment.
0: Mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. a editor at the in Spain. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I would like to ask you a question about uh, your job and how do you think about the evolution of your job as a public editor mm-hmm. in a world that is uh, 24
2: hours uh, news, 24 hours possibilities of mistakes? Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. And I see you're publishing your job. And tell me if I'm mistaken, it's much more print centric in the rhythm of how you publish. You're I'm sorry,
2: what's the word you use? Print used? centric. Ah, You're print publishing centric. Two time, uh, once every two weeks, more or less. I was checking. Mm, that's not so.
0: No? No. OK, I was checking the. OK. Uh, but anyway, uh, my question is, are you thinking about changing the way you interact with your readers and the way and the rhythm uh, of how you sure. Publish, uh, sure. Books, I understand what you're saying, and
2: yeah, I'd like to speak to that. Um, well, when I was when I was brought in as public editor, the whole idea—and this is just five months ago—the uh, whole idea was they wanted uh, to take it to the new media world that you're talking about. It should be a blog. It should be Twitter. It should be Storify. It should be all these different things, and. Um, And I was very interested in doing that. I had already started blogging and doing those kinds of things in my previous job, and I was very interested in it. Um, The idea of the editors who brought me in was originally to eliminate the print column altogether and to just just do digital stuff. Um, I actually wanted to do both. I wanted to keep the every other week print column that you're talking about, which was the traditional role, but also... Blog and tweet and all that other stuff. Um, so uh, the, you know, I just happened to be looking back at at some things I had done, and I realized that during my first week on the job, which was the week of Labor Day, it was a four day week. Um, I actually blogged four times and wrote a print column, so that was insane. And I can't keep up that pace, but um, and I haven't kept up that pace. But I actually, um, I think what you're talking about is 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 what's happening right now, that it has turned into um, a very interactive conversation with readers, not just an every other week handing the stone tablets down.
1: I'd like to also make a point that this column appears in a very powerful, prominent place on the most important day of the week for the New York Times, which is Sunday, On the editorial page with extra space. Do you have a limit on how how much you can write?
2: No, but I always write short, so I don't write the fifteen hundred words. They wanted to eliminate.
1: I can't imagine, but if they did it, I, in my opinion, it would diminish the importance of the column. For sure.
2: Well, I made a case for keeping it, and what I found is that um, there are two very different audiences. There's there's the print reader who has no idea that there's a blog and doesn't care and doesn't isn't on Twitter and will say to me, "Oh, you know." I enjoy your column. It must be an easy job. You only write every once every a week. <laughs> and then there are the people who are over on the other side who have not picked up a printed newspaper maybe ever. So they're very different audiences. I, I think there is an intersection of sets, people who do both or may stumble across it on, on, both, uh, in both, on both platforms. But uh, for the most part, they're very different. And I didn't want to lose those print readers because, for one thing, they support the paper. Um, you know, Once you pay your $800 a year subscription, you are, I think you ought to be paid attention to and not treated as sort of, you know, you can read the republished blogs once in a while. Um, so I, I thought they were very important, and um, I, I didn't want to give up on them. But I still wanted to do this new thing. That's it.
5: Or a question: The favor is, would you keep an eye on the word reform? I find that it creeps in all the time, like tort reform. Mm. And if you capture the language, you capture the argument. And I find it's constantly creeping in in places where it doesn't belong, mm. across the board in the media. So
2: I'll pay attention to I just that. Just going to mention that. Okay. The word reform. All right. Okay? Thank because you. If
5: you're opposed to reform, <laughs> you are already cast on the side of Satan. Right? That's right. So. Right. Um, So here's my question, and it sounds kind of silly, Um, and Mm -hmm. I'm horribly confused on this. I don't know where I stand on it. Okay. But it has to do with how do you recognize a fact? Mm -hmm. And I just want to frame it real quick. There's a line by W.H. Auden, law say the gardeners is the sun.
2: Say that again? Law
5: say the gardeners
2: is the sun. I see.
5: The gardeners know what the law is, Mm -hmm. it's the sun. Mm -hmm. Virtually every trade, region, and nation knows what the law is. It is in reference to whatever it is that gives it its faith, its life, its mythology, whatever. Okay. I'm reading right now Joseph Goebbels' diaries, mm-hmm. where everything is upside down in the world. He knows what fact is. Churchill is the gangster. And the brutality and savagery of bombing German cities unprovoked is what he goes on and on about. Mm-hmm. You mentioned judges taking notice of facts like evolution. I think of Dred Scott and a whole host of other decisions that were horrible. So I guess I want to know how do you know what a fact is? your is your model, the Senate or the House, is your model protecting the minority, or is it giving into the majority, the tyranny of the majority? Mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is, and I'm perplexed by it. Right. Is that
1: is that like saying what is truth though? I, yeah. mean, I, I mean, does it hobble you?
5: But if you had to pick. Mm -hmm. between the fallacies of of walking down the middle and giving (coughs) equal faith Mm -hmm. to both and a permissive recognition of what you, given your school crest or your personal pedigree or socioeconomic status, recognized to be fact, I'd almost err on the side of the uh, false equivalencies. I don't know. But I just wanted to – that's what I call an invitation Mm – I'd like you to tell me how do you know
2: what a fact is? Well, some things are just wrong. Um, for example, and I hope I can render this right, but there's something here. Um, in I, I mentioned uh, Paul Ryan's address to the Republican National Convention, and it was it was much criticized for having factual errors in it. And one of the things he said was that the um, Janesville Wisconsin GM plant had um, that, you know, he criticized President Obama for um, allowing that plant to close. I mean, I'm sort of summarizing here and I may not have it exactly right, but, you know, that was the gist of it. And it turned out that the plant closed uh, before President Obama ever took office. Okay? Well, that's, that I think is a correctable Establishable fact. That's a
5: simple one. Well, simple those are the one. ones I like.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think that I don't think that you can uh, necessarily make rulings on the complicated things not easily, and not today, but maybe next month or maybe a year from now. You know, I. I, mean, I we're still
5: arguing about about Roosevelt and the New Deal. You know, and we're still arguing so. You know, I'm just—I just find it curious, because I I, I I agree with you that I don't want to disseminate falsehood or to 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 um, legitimize it. Mm-hmm. But I'll be damned if I, if I know in more complicated areas what fact is. Well, you're right.
2: But I think in more complicated areas we may need to hear both sides out and recognize complexity. But there are times when there's simply something that happened. Uh, Ryan Lanza didn't kill those kids. Well,
1: Ma- may- maybe, maybe in part, words. it's a it's a it's a distinction in the word "error" and the word, you know, "wrong." You describe something as wrong. Well, there's a moral sort of dimension there. An error is simply something that is well, in, de- in defiance er- of, of all evidence to you know that is plausibly you know mm-hmm. reasonable. Right. Yes, sir. So I want to follow
2: on to this
1: we We're going to, this is going to have to be the last
2: question, so it's going to have to be quick. So take it down, but do it fast. Um,
4: (laughs) So in 2004, the Washington Post and the New York Times both reported, I'm sorry, Boston Globe and the Washington Post both reported on um, the night that Obama gave his talk at at the convention, and the coverage was completely different. The Globe headline was, because Ted Kennedy talked, it was, Old Guard Reasserts Itself, Mm -hmm. roughly. And the Washington uh, Post was, New guard, excitement of the party, new voice. This was an event in which uh, the speeches were given out ahead of time. It was a simple case for a reportage. So if it's the case that, uh, I want to know how, A, how objectivity plays in this case. What does it mean to be objective in reporting of what went on that night? And second of all, if there is, in fact, both of these are reasonable uh, ways of taking the night, which I think they were, mm-hmm. then why is it, this is a question not about the truth of objectivity, but the utility of it when news comes in that I need to understand, it's not a simple yes, no, it's not a fact thing. I don't understand what this ruling means, what this event means. Why shouldn't I go to the, um, to the site, to the social network that best reflects my views? Because the other side, they're anti-abortion, they're anti-everything, and I don't agree with them. And the, the information that I'm getting, the contextualization I'm gonna get from them is just not gonna be as useful as what I will get from the people who, bear, who share my basic assumptions.
2: Well, the problem there, is that you're going to dig yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into your ide- ideological hole, and you're not going to hear from the other side. You're going to hear what you want to hear and what people who are just like you think. And I don't think that's a great way to be informed.
1: If you want to test this, do it tonight. State of the Union speech, the Associated Press and Wikipedia versus NBC versus you know, Cato Institute and Red State and who knows. I mean, it's going to be a real exercise in in all of the things you've been talking about. It'll be the same speech that an awful lot of people see and hear, but how it's going to be reported is going to be very, very interesting to see. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, and good luck.